Welcome to the Urgent Matters podcast. This is a series where leading experts from around the world share with us their latest insights into overactive bladder. I'm your host, Professor Paul Abrams, and I'm delighted that you have joined us for this latest instalment. Today's podcast is going to be on overactive bladder in women and I'm delighted that we can welcome Professor Linda Cardozo as our expert. Uh, She trained in Liverpool and graduated in 1974. She then did a highly relevant MD thesis from our point of view uh, on overactive bladder and what was then called detrusor instability. She became a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist in 85 and then became professor of urogynaecology at King's College Hospital in 1994. She's an expert in lower urinary tract dysfunction uh, in women and has written extensively on the investigation and management of overactive bladder describing both its pathophysiology and its treatment and I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from her during this podcast. Thank you, Paul, for those kind words. In fact, Paul and I go back a very long way. We first met in 1977 at a conference in Portoroz, which was then Yugoslavia. And uh, I have to say, we've had a very stimulating relationship over the years and have done a considerable amount of research together and interacted in um, many publications. So it's a pleasure to be on this podcast today. Uh, Thanks very much, Linda. Well, things have changed, fortunately, since 1977. Uh, But how have women's attitudes changed in terms of being willing to talk about overactive bladder and incontinence, which I suppose traditionally have been taboo subjects? Women and men are far more open about bodies and bodily functions. And this is largely the result of the internet, social media, and publicity relating to not just incontinence but sexual activity and various other aspects of women's and men's lives. Um, And this can be both good and bad. It's good to have openness, honesty and frankness and to be able to discuss these problems because it leads to empowerment and it also leads to a better way of understanding what can be done about these problems. On the other hand, it's not always good because women try to emulate supermodels who are often depicted as being tall and slim and a lot of airbrushing of pictures and digital photography manipulation can lead to a perception that adolescent genitalia are normal in adult women and of course they're not so we need to portray realistic body images for women. But some ways in which it has helped have been the the acknowledgement that continence products are available. Many women for years use sanitary protection for their urinary incontinence. And obviously sanitary protection does not um, contain the odor and does not contain as much fluid as is required in incontinence pads. And women are now able to access incontinence devices over the internet. Now, looking at it the other way, If they're using protection and containment products, they're probably not accessing the healthcare that's available to provide proper diagnosis and treatment. And this is a really important aspect of looking after women with lower urinary tract problems. 
So you would say, are they more willing to come to see a healthcare professional with overactive bladder symptoms these days than when you started out in uh, doing your thesis work, for example, in, in the late 70s? Yes, women now acknowledge the fact that something can be done because they see advertisements to that effect. When we started out, uh, women thought that lower urinary tract problems, particularly incontinence, were a part of the normal ageing process, having had children, wear and tear, and lifestyle, and therefore they did not come forward to seek help because they didn't realise that something could be done about their problems. And of course there was much less that could be done about their urinary incontinence and overactive bladder. Nowadays we have a plethora of medications, we know that lifestyle advice is very helpful um, and we didn't have the availability of those resources when I started out and you started out in the 1970s. In, in terms of the natural history of overactive bladder in women, uh, what, what do you tell women is likely to happen over the years to their symptoms? Well, we know that overactive bladder is very common in the adult population. About 16% of both men and women suffer from overactive bladder symptoms. These become increasingly troublesome um, as part of the aging process because overactive bladder and other lower urinary tract symptoms increase with increasing age. Very interesting, if we look at the life course of overactive bladder, many people who have these symptoms were bedwetters in childhood and that may represent a failure of the maturation reflex to be controlled early in life. So um, it's interesting that it's quite often uh, something that runs in families. Um, bedwetting is prevalent amongst families who have uh, overactive bladder problems in later life. Uh, I think that um, Older people have additional problems which exacerbate their lower urinary tract symptoms. For example, an inability to move so easily and so they can't access the toilet in time. And also there can be um, neurological aspects that increase with increasing age such as dementia, Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis. Yes. Uh, so. You did some work, very interesting work, on, on setting goals and expectations in women with overactive bladder symptoms. Well, what does that tell us about how we should approach the whole management issue when we discuss it with a woman when we see them first? Well, women's lifestyle changes with their change in age and what matters most to a woman may be very different when she's in her 20s from when she's in her 40s or in her 80s. So an example would be that a girl or woman of 20 with a new boyfriend would be grossly embarrassed at wetting herself during sexual intercourse or bedwetting when she has a new partner. A woman in her 40s would be more embarrassed about going to the loo frequently because she'd have to pass her colleagues in the corridor and they would criticise her for keeping getting up and going to the loo. And a woman in her 80s would be very embarrassed by wetting her friends for tea when she goes and has tea or drinks with her. So the aims and aspirations of women of different ages change and it's very important for the healthcare professionals and I mean by this nurses, physiotherapists and doctors to ask women what it is that matters most to them before assuming that it's one aspect of their symptoms. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important issue. Uh, as you've implied, patients in, in the UK at least will always go to their family doctor, to the family practice. Um, in the family practice, to what length should they go to diagnose overactive bladder? Because I'm wondering how often uh, overactive bladder is misdiagnosed. Well, a good general practitioner if he has a continence advisor attached to the practice, will advise the woman to see the continence advisor or the continence nurse in the first instance. And they are very much better at eliciting symptoms than doctors are because doctors spend far less time with patients than nurses do. But if the doctor is seeing the patient, him or herself, then it's very important to discuss their symptoms and what matters most to them. It's important to exclude any gross pathology by uh, abdominal and possibly vaginal examination, um, which is best practice. It would be very good to give a three-day bladder diary, which the woman can complete and return to the general practitioner. And this is most important in offering lifestyle advice. Uh, because many women nowadays drink far too much fluid. It's typical to see a patient in the outpatients clinic when I see patients and they have a sippy sippy bottle of water and they sip from it while they're talking to you. And when you say, why are you doing that? They say, because I'm dehydrated. It's good for me to drink all this water. It avoids constipation. It stops me from overeating. But in fact, the only per people who um, excessive drinking is good for are the manufacturers of mineral water who make a lot of profit out of women drinking far too much. And I, I got so fed up with this that I went to our renal physicians and I said, what is a normal fluid intake? And they said, for an adult in a temperate climate, it is 24 millilitres per kilogram of body weight per 24 hours. So for an average size woman, that equates to about 1.5 litres in 24 hours. And that should include all of the drinks, including milk on cereal and porridge and, and soup, not just the water that a woman drinks. So in fact, they don't need to drink all these litres of water. And all it does is make their lower urinary tract symptoms considerably worse. And I think, Paul, you've shown that in a study with Hashim Hashim, uh, that a 25% reduction in fluid intake results in decreased frequency, nocturia and urgency. Yes, that's true. I, I mean, it's, it seems a bit strange that, that, that you and I as professors working in a, quite a specialised field are spending a lot of our time giving extremely basic advice. But I'm very happy f that you've mentioned that lifestyle changes and behavioural interventions are, are critical in the management of overactive bladder. It seems that we still need to get this over to those people who see the patients first in primary care before they ever get to us. Could we do a better job in that respect? Oh, much better. Counselling is all important. Um, and as, as I said already, it's often the nurses who do a better job than the doctors do. But when we see patients, if they are overweight, we should advise them that they need to try to lose weight. And if necessary, if they have a body mass index of over 40, we might even consider referring them to the bariatrics um, 
for consideration of bariatric surgery. Of course, they don't always have bariatric surgery, but if they go to the right department in the hospital, they may get better advice about weight management. And in addition, constipation is a terrible problem amongst uh, people in the United Kingdom, uh, and constipation can exacerbate lower urinary tract symptoms. Yes, yes, and that's absolutely correct, isn't it? So if the lifestyle interventions uh, and the behavioural modifications uh, don't work, how do you next approach management? Well, there are, there are other lifestyle interventions that we ought to discuss that are very important. Um, what women and men eat and drink has a, an impact on their bladder function. So avoidance of caffeine containing drinks and food, and that includes coffee, tea, Coca-Cola, of course, and chocolate. A lot of people don't realize that chocolate contains caffeine and green tea, which women often regard as being another herbal tea, whereas that's actually full of caffeine. Um, in addition, artificial sweetness, such as aspartame, uh, can affect the bladder, and women don't realize that their low-fat yogurt is actually evil for their bladder, because if you take the fat out of food, you take the flavor out, and that's replaced by artificial sweeteners. And unfortunately for many women, white and fizzy wines such as Prosecco and Champagne have a great impact on the bladder. So I advise women, if they're going to drink alcohol, which is perfectly acceptable, I think we've all been drinking more alcohol over the last year or so, um, they should drink red wine or spirits with a non-diet mixer. So they just have to consider what they're buying when they go into the shops and look what it, what it contains. Um, and some women are very compliant when you give them this advice. Other women prefer not to follow the advice and you have to tell them that their symptoms will not improve if they don't modify their lifestyle. But of course, when lifestyle interventions fail to alleviate symptoms, we would normally go on to the next line of therapy. And for the general practitioner, According to the NICE guidelines from 2013 and 2019, they would go on to prescribing um, a generic antimuscarinic. Now the caveat is that generic antimuscarinics are not thought to be good for older and frail older people uh, because they contribute to the anticholinergic load. And many older people are taking over-the-counter remedies such as antihistamines, they may be taking a tricyclic antidepressant and they may be taking drugs for their bladder as well. And the anticholinergic load or burden can lead to cognitive dysfunction in the elderly and the frail elderly. For, so for them, it would not be advisable to prescribe um, a generic antimuscarinic as first-line therapy. It would be better to prescribe a branded medication with a good safety profile or um, mirabigron, which is the beta adrenoreceptor agonist. That is not normally advocated in the UK as first-line therapy. It was advocated in an appraisal technology for those women who are not able to take an antimuscarinic or for whom it's ineffective or contraindicated. But I think more people nowadays are moving over to using Mirabigron as a first-line therapy, as it always has been in the United States. There is a, a recent paper, isn't there, from, uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, written by a urogynecologist, which looks at prescribing data 
uh, and prescribing habits in North America. Um, and this seems to reinforce what you have said about changes in prescribing. Yes, I think, I think with the knowledge that cognitive function can be impaired in elderly and frail elderly, there's been a move away from uh, the anti-muscarinics towards um, mirabigron. However, we have to remember that a, an anti-muscarinic such as trospium chloride, which doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier because it's a quaternary amine and not a tertiary amine, is safe in the elderly and does not have the same connotations as the other anti-muscarinics. What are your thoughts about combining an anti-muscarinic with uh, mirabegron in treating overactive bladder, presumably who don't do well enough on, on a single drug? Well, I'm a great believer in combination therapy because you can minimise the side effect profile um, whilst giving more efficacy. So uh, clinical trials have shown that a dose of solifenacin of 5 milligrams a day together with mirabigron 50 milligrams a day gives you no worse side effects than the solifenacin on its own because of course the side effect profile of a beta adrenoreceptor agonist is completely different and is at placebo level compared to an anti-muscarinic agent. So you get increased efficacy with no increase in side effects. There are other combination therapies as well. Um, in, in, in men, obviously, combination therapy has been used a lot with um, tamsulosin together with solifenacin. But in women, you can use the combination of a vaginal estrogen, which is very important in the management of postmenopausal women with overactive bladder symptoms. So many older women, 10 years past the menopause or more, suffer from genitourinary syndrome of the menopause, which is the terminology which is now used to describe vulvovaginal atrophy. Uh, and the, the remedy for this is very simple. It's vaginal estrogen, except in women who can't use estrogens because of breast cancer or some other hormone-dependent cancer. So um, uh, something like Vagifem, which is vaginal estradiol, or Ovestim, which is vaginal estriol, can be employed three times a week indefinitely, and it can be given in combination with a drug for treating overactive bladder, and that combination can be very effective indeed. That seems to me a very important message as we're dealing with an ageing population, uh, both uh, men and women. So perhaps we ought to talk a little bit more about it. It sometimes seems to me that I ought to prescribe vaginal estrogens for all postmenopausal women that I see uh, coming with lower urinary tract symptoms to the clinic. Is that, is that right, wrong, uh, overstating the case? No, I think that's absolutely correct. I think all postmenopausal women who have lower urinary tract symptoms will benefit from vaginal estrogens. Now, interestingly, until 2012, when a Cochrane review was published, we believed that estrogens given systemically or vaginally would improve lower urinary tract symptoms and particularly incontinence in women. Following the um, subgroup analysis of three large epidemiological studies, we now appreciate that systemic hormone replacement therapy does not improve incontinence, but it has a completely different action from local vaginal estrogens, and therefore we should concentrate on giving local therapy. 
there are disadvantages and advantages. The disadvantages uh, of vaginal estrogens are that you don't get the systemic benefits on the bones, uh, vasomotor symptoms, memory and mood. The advantages are that you don't need a progestogen to protect the endometrium because you don't get endometrial stimulation with the low-dose vaginal preparations. Um, and they can be given completely safely in the long term. And GPs need to be educated about this because GPs seem to give a course of three months or six months of a vaginal estrogen and think they can then stop it. But of course that is not the case. Um, if there is vulvovaginal atrophy, then you need long-term treatment, just as you would treat the thyroid deficiency with thyroxine. You don't suddenly stop it and say you don't need it anymore. So we need to provide education for the prescribers so they appreciate that this is a long-term therapeutic strategy. Thank you for that. I mean, that's a very, very clear message. Um, you've lectured all around the world uh, on overactive bladder. Does this issue of vaginal hormone replacement, um, is that seen differently in different cultures? And is OAB seen differently in different cultures in its broadest sense? There, there is a huge difference in um, the United Kingdom, most of Europe and in North America. Uh, we improve women's quality of life and obviously overactive bladder is a quality of life not a life-threatening issue. In less well-developed countries uh, where healthcare can only be provided for the most severe conditions particularly cancers then uh, women don't get the treatment that they would like to have for overactive bladder because it's not seen to be a priority and I, I think that's generally quite fair because there aren't the healthcare resources in underdeveloped countries. Thank you very much. Linda, can you say a bit about the ongoing management of overactive bladder? Yes, certainly. That There are women who fail to respond to lifestyle advice, bladder retraining uh, and drug therapy who need further intervention for what we call refractory overactive bladder. Now these become expensive invasive treatments and it's very important to carry out urodynamics before undertaking this type of treatment and the reason for that is uh, not only is there a cost to the healthcare system but there can be morbidity to the individual patient. So you need to make an active diagnosis of detrusor overactivity which is overactivity of the bladder not just a symptomatic diagnosis based on urgency, frequency, nocturia and urgency incontinence. And the, the advice that we would give women regarding ongoing management if they have refractory overactive bladder is the use of intravesical Botox, that's botulinum toxin, which can be injected into the bladder under either local or general anaesthesia. Its effect lasts for up to six months to a year and then it can be repeated. The disadvantage of Botox is because it paralyzes the bladder, um, women can develop urinary retention and they may need clean intermittent self-catheterization for a period of time and it also has quite a, a high urinary tract infection rate. Um, if that is ineffective or inappropriate there are two different types of neuromodulation. There's posterior tibial neuromodulation which usually is carried out at weekly intervals over a period of 12 weeks and then there can be top-ups 
and there are new systems being developed now where an implantable device can be put into the woman's leg and she can stimulate it at home. Alternatively, more invasive is sacral neuromodulation. It's very expensive and it is subject to technical failures, which means that revisions may be required with a fairly high explantation rate. And finally, there's uh, invasive reconstructive surgery, but that is rarely used now, uh, except as a, a last resort. Uh, and for the elderly, then it may be more appropriate to put in a suprapubic catheter and use con and or use containment products. So I don't want anyone to go away from this podcast thinking that overactive bladder is a single entity because it isn't. It's a constellation of symptoms, including urgency, urgency incontinence, frequency and nocturia. And when I last wrote a book chapter on urgency and frequency in women, I found 34 different causes. So you mustn't assume that because a woman has that symptom complex, she necessarily has underlying detrusor overactivity. She may have urological causes such as stones, cancer, um, bladder pain syndrome, or most commonly recurrent urinary tract infections. There can be gynecological causes, including a cystocele, that's an anterior vaginal wall prolapse, or a pelvic mass pressing on the bladder, such as fibroids. There can be underlying medical conditions, such as diabetes, or the neurological conditions that I mentioned previously, such as multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease. Women can just have bad drinking habits, as I mentioned earlier, or they may have anxiety states, or they may have developed symptoms by going to avoid frequently to avoid embarrassment. And of course, there are even physiological causes because pregnancy causes uh, urgency and frequency of micturition. So if patients don't respond to um, the initial measures provided by the family practitioner or continence nurse, then it is important to go on to investigate them. And normally this would include urodynamics, a cystoscopy and imaging of the upper urinary tracts. And I think those are all very important uh, to understand because making an accurate diagnosis is far more likely to lead to appropriate uh, and helpful treatment. Well, you've nicely described the, 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 the pyramid, if you like, of patients, with many patients in primary care, a few coming to us in secondary and tertiary care. Uh, we haven't specifically spoken about the behavioural modifications of bladder training and pelvic floor exercises in women for overactive bladder. Um, if there's no suggestion of stress incontinence, do you, still, uh, do you still advise women to do pelvic floor exercises if they have overactive bladder and do you, uh, do you ask them to do bladder training? Um, pelvic floor exercises are important for all women, especially those who've had children, uh, especially vaginal instrumental deliveries. And these are taught best by a dedicated women's health physiotherapist. The NICE guidelines are quite clear that for stress urinary incontinence and mixed urinary incontinence, pelvic floor muscle training should be a, a supervised activity for a, at least three months. It's less clear with regard to overactive bladder because the research trials have not been carried out. Most of the research on pelvic floor re-education has been in women with stress urinary incontinence and mixed urinary incontinence. But this is still a very important um, activity like any exercising is to strengthen the appropriate muscle groups. 
Bladder retraining is interesting and is usually carried out by specialist nurses for a period of at least six weeks and it really aims to improve the intervoid interval so that women void less frequently and this is done by voiding by the clock rather than by desire because women fall into bad habits of going to empty their bladder every time they pass the toilet uh, so they won't be caught short and they do toilet mapping which means that when they're out they know where every toilet is so they can access it um, but breaking this vicious circle and, and habit retraining can form a very important component of managing the overactive bladder. And in fact, women can be cured sometimes by uh, changing their drinking habits and changing their voiding habits. Thank you very much, Professor Cardoza. It's been very interesting talking to you and I think we've learned a lot. It's strange, I suppose, to say that you've spent a lot of time talking about very simple things. And perhaps that's a little bit disappointing that you have to do this, because certainly you do have to do this. And I think the emphasis you've, you've put on that uh, at initial assessment, the patient should be, the woman should be asked about what's her fluid intake, is she drinking too much? What's she drinking? If she's drinking a lot of liquids with caffeine, then try cutting out the caffeine for a while and see if that improves. Uh, talking about pelvic floor function and bladder retraining. Considering combination therapy of antimuscarinics plus Mirabegron. Being well aware that in an aging population of women, we need to worry about cognitive function and, as you pointed out, anti-muscarinic lobe. So perhaps we move more towards Mirabegron in the very elderly. And then you came to vaginal hormone replacement therapy and you made a very clear distinction that this is not general hormone uh, replacement therapy and that it's very safe and women can take it indefinitely. And uh, you thought probably all older women past the menopause would benefit if they have any lower urinary tract symptoms form uh, vaginal hormone therapy. And then of course we have a few patients who require uh, sophisticated uh, specialized uh, treatments such as sacral nerve stimulation. But for the vast majority of patients I think you've set out very clearly that in women let's get the simple things right first. So many thanks for your participation in this podcast which has been very valuable. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to participate in this debate. It's been very interesting and I hope that people will find it informative. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Urgent Matters podcast series. And we hope that this has helped share further insights into overactive bladder. We would like to thank Estellas for their kind support in sponsoring this podcast. Please stay tuned for the next episode where we continue to explore key insights from experts in the field of OAB.